creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. When I was starting out in high school, there was nothing that I wanted more than to be cool. I'm ashamed to admit it. Even today, as a 36-year-old man, uh, I'm still embarrassed that I desperately wanted to be cool. Why am I embarrassed? Because there's nothing less cool than wanting to be cool. That's the one way you can be sure that you will not be it. Uh, and so it makes it just, it's such a mind game. How do you become cooler if you're not supposed to want it? And for the first part of my creative career, I kind of had the same conundrum. Like it felt like as far as I could tell that making art was just about how do you make something 1% cooler than the stuff that's already out there. But if you try too hard to do that, all of a sudden you've negated your ability and you've made it 15% less cool. You've lost all of your credibility. Like it just felt like an impossible game to win uh, until I started to feel like maybe making art isn't about being cool at all. If you are frustrated trying to make work that's just 1% cooler all the while, making it look like it's a breeze, making it look like you don't care if anybody likes it, I'm just doing my thing. If you're sick of playing the mind games, this episode is for you because how do you make your work better instead of just trying to make it cooler? That's what we're going to explore on this episode. But before we do... A quick word from our beloved sponsors. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In the Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In the Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site, It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it, 
got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. Chapter one, quit trying to reinvent the wheel. When I think about what helped me be more creative and make better creative work throughout my creative journey, one of the biggest obstacles that was holding me back for the longest time was the fact that I was trying to reinvent the wheel so often. This is a very hard lesson to learn because it seems completely counterintuitive, right? Like how is it that being more creative wouldn't start with being more original, you know, thinking outside the box, being more innovative, like that's what creativity is all about. And it's exactly why I think so many folks miss this key piece in the first and in one of the biggest, most important creative lessons on my journey was starting with being the opposite of creative and understanding and learning from what already works. Uh, Just imagine like in the world of science, a scientist that's like, no, I'm not learning from anybody else. I'm going back and rediscovering gravity and soap and all these things that we've had for hundreds and thousands of years. Like, There is nothing that that human would do that would be a breakthrough in our lifetime. No, the breakthroughs are going to come from those who are practicing and utilizing everything we already have working for us. That's where the breakthroughs are going to be found. So my in-laws are currently here from the UK visiting And uh, we went to a movie over the weekend, and when we left the theater, I asked my father-in-law what he thought of the movie. And um, it's a computer-animated movie. I'm not going to say what it is. I'm not here to trash anything. But he said he thought the animation was really, really impressive, very cool. Uh, The skill level to pull that off is beyond his comprehension. But otherwise, eh, It didn't really do anything for him. Like kind of cool, but otherwise more or less he was in the same place that he was when he entered the movie theater a couple hours ago. Now when we think about creativity, if we're honest, as a culture, I feel like most of us measure artwork by how skilled it is and how cool it is. Uh, Those are the measurements I think that we kind of naturally grade artwork in, Uh, you know, and if that was the only metrics, this is the greatest film of the highest order, but 
Why then, if we go into a theater and we see something that is really cool and highly skilled to make, and but that's it, why would we feel kind of ripped off leaving the cinema? And I would say the same goes for an art museum. If you went into an art museum and you saw something pretty cool that definitely took a lot of skill to pull off, but it left you more or less in the same place emotionally, mentally, or spiritually as when you went in, would you even say that you encountered art? If art, music, books, movies, and whatever it is you make in your creative practice is more than just something that takes skill and more than just making something cool, what is it about? What makes it art? It's it's not really super easy to put your finger on. It's not as obvious as, say, like a car. We all know what a car is, and we know what a car does. Um, I remember when I was a kid, where I'm from growing up, you had to have a favorite car. It, it wasn't enough to have a favorite color. You couldn't be like, I like yellow. That's not enough. Y'all, we also got to know what kind of car do you like? Now, I'm not a car person. I would have loved to just be like, I like yellow cars. No, that was not going to cut it where I was from. You had to have more than that to play the social game back in elementary school for me. And so for the longest time, I would say my go-to was a Corvette Stingray. If you don't know what a Corvette Stingray is, you are missing out. This is a pretty cool car, okay? Now, if you've seen the 1998 comedy classic Rush Hour with uh, martial artist Jackie Chan, then you've seen a Corvette Stingray. It's the car that Chris Tucker drives in that movie. It's a pretty cool car. Now, that's all I really knew about it then, and it's pretty much all I know about it today. It's cool. But... One day, I remember I'm at the store, and I see this toy Matchbox car, and and it's in its little packaging, and I'm just like blown away. I'm like, holy smokes. This I'm sorry, Chris Tucker. This thing is blowing your Stingray away. This is the coolest car that I have ever seen. It looked like it was from the future. Now, I instantly was like, yo, I got to figure out where, you know, all these Matchbox cars, they always have the name on the packaging. And I'm like looking, I'm like, what is this thing called? Because I got to update my favorite car next time my friends ask me. I'm going to be telling them about this car and it's going to be so much cooler. It's going to blow their minds and they're going to be like, this guy knows what he's talking about. But when I looked at the name of the car, I was kind of confused because it just said something like concept car. And I didn't know what that meant. I don't know if you know what it means, um, but I probably asked my dad or my brother. I was like, what does it mean, concept car? What is that the name of the car? And they're like, no, it, it just means that that's not a real car. It's just kind of an idea of a car. It's just a cool idea for what a car could be. But it doesn't actually work. Now, I didn't know anything about cars then, still don't, but I know enough, to, I knew enough then to say, that I couldn't make this my favorite car. Like that was not gonna cut it. This could not knock the Corvette Stingray off the top place. Why? Because it's not really a car. Why? Because for it to be a car, it has to be more than cool, right? Like you know that, I know that, I knew that when I was 10 years old. Being a cool thing that has four wheels, a steering wheel and some windows does not make it a 
a car. It can't be your favorite car. Why? Because it can't transport you anywhere. You're not moving. It's not a car. If it's unable to move you, sure, you can call it cool, but if it leaves you exactly where it found you, can you really call it art at all? But back to the car world for a second. Imagine a world where someone makes the coolest concept car ever. It's so cool that all the other car designers are like, oh my gosh, this is so much cooler than what me made. We're like, they get so obsessed with this cool car. It's so cool that they quit making cars that take you places and they just obsess over making something cooler than that concept car. And this goes on for so long that we all forget that cars were ever something that were supposed to take you anywhere at all. We forgot that cars were supposed to work. Now, I know that's ridiculous. That can never happen. Like, I mean, that's, that's impossible. How could we would never reduce a vehicle whose sole purpose was to take you somewhere to something that's just supposed to be cool, right? That couldn't happen. But imagine that it did happen. Then one day, some car designer discovers what cars were actually meant to do. If that person made a car that actually worked, if they studied the mechanics of how these things actually move people and quit trying to reinvent the wheel and instead just figured out how it worked, it wouldn't even need to be cool. It'd be an instant breakthrough. It'd be an instant hit. Now, I know that's ridiculous. Like that would never happen. The car world is never going to get to a place where cars don't actually work. But what about the art world that you find yourself in? Does the art in your art world actually work? And if it doesn't, is it really art work at all? What if you quit trying to incrementally outcool the other artists, quit trying to reinvent the wheel, and instead learn the mechanics of how the art that moved you, took you to the places that it took you? What if you started to reflect on and understand and master the art of how it created that explosive chemical combustion inside your head and your heart? We are cooking with gas now. You wouldn't even need it to be cool, which is great news for me. (laughs) And maybe you too. I don't know how cool you are, but... If you want to be more creative, if you want to make better creative work that works, I think it starts with quit trying to be cool uh, and instead get really clear on the same thing that that imaginary car designer had to get really clear on. And it's what is this supposed to do? Chapter two, take a look under the hood. Let's say you listen to part one and you're like, hey, I want to attempt to make artwork that works on people. I want to not just make cool stuff. I want to make stuff that does stuff to people, that takes people places, that moves them on a deeper level. You're saying, okay, well, how do we actually do that? Let's get into the process. And I think it starts with 
taking a look under the hood of your creative practice and the work that works on you. Now, this episode is part two in our four-part creative mastery series. Sounds really fancy. Uh, It's really just about being more creative on purpose. Uh, That's kind of what this whole show is all about. It's what I'm trying to do. That's the way that I approach my creative practice. So in the last episode, we talked about the most obvious aspect of being more creative on purpose, which is growing your skill. Now, that might be obvious. Uh, The fact that if you want to make better creative work, part of that is having more skill in what you're doing. But what might not be obvious and that we explored in this last episode is that continuing to challenge yourself by learning new skills and grow isn't just the key to making better work, but also, according to psychologists like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author of the book Flow, it's also the key to staying interested and excited and passionate about your work so that it doesn't go st- grow stale or you don't get too masterful over what you're doing and lose interest in it and lose flow. So this episode, this is part two of that series, uh, and we're talking about strategies. All of them are going to start with S so that they're easy to recall. Um, And so when I say strategies, what I mean is creative tactics or mechanics, creative strategies on how the art in your work works on people on a psychological level. So how how do... punchlines make people laugh? How does Pixar make you cry every single time? How does a painting guide your eye and keep you engaged and intrigued and and um, and interested? How does a poster design grab you and then take you on this journey of an aha moment in your head? These moments, these destinations that these creations take you on are not accidents, at least when they're made by master creators. If they were made by masterful creators, these moments are intentional. This podcast, in fact, is about that kind of creator specifically. Call it what you want, a creative practice, a career creative, uh, a maker who is in it for the long haul, interested in not just some lucky breaks or accidental creative break breakthroughs from time to time, but interested in maintaining uh, interest and passion and, and, and peak output throughout a lifetime over the long haul of a creative journey. How, however you want to call it, whatever you want to think of it as, whether it's a career or if it's a journey, whatever, this type of creator must be able to do that work on purpose You don't have to achieve that without learning some lessons where you can do these these mechanics and strategies and tools um, each and every piece that you make. So recently, while I was cleaning up an old hard drive, I was getting through my digital junk for the first time in a long time, um, getting rid of some computers, wiping some super old iPads and recycling them, that kind of terribly boring thing, but it has to be done at some point. I came across a song that I had made back uh, in like 2011 that I thought was lost in the sands of microchip time. Um, You know, microchips are made by sand, right? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, I came across a song 
And um, I thought that I, I've been, I'd looked for it for a long time. I never was able to find it. Um, the music, the beat is made by a friend of a friend named Dylan Patterson. Um, and he gave me that beat. And then I did all the vocals and lyrics and, and, uh, and singing, rapping, <laughs> if you will. Um, here's a tiny clip of that song. Now we started something. Everybody's bumping. Everything is going right. Feeling like it's summertime. Drinking lots of Gatorade. Everything is going great. Anybody ever say from trying to make a point? Everybody dies, but not me. That's enough of that. Um, it's called Super Satisfaction. Um, look, I made like a hundred songs in the span of a couple years, like late college, early um, out of college, and I'd say about ninety-eight of the hundred were absolute trash. At least the part that I contributed, just not. I don't. I didn't know any. I didn't know what I was doing at all. I don't have a background in music. I just love music and I wanted to be part of it. And I was having a ton of fun on GarageBand and with my friends who would like provide some beats or um, songs or, or what have you. And I would add my my vocals and experiments um, that way. Uh, but I lost this song and... When I found it, I was a little scared to listen to it because I always kind of thought that this was the best song that I was ever a part of making. And um, and I was a little bit worried that I was going to listen to it and think, oh, this is actually awful. But turns out I still kind of like it. I'm not saying it's brilliant, but I there's a lot of things going on there that I'm still proud of. And I don't know, maybe it's awful. Who knows? But I like it. It's, it's to my taste. It's one of the only songs I ever... Uh, worked on that I still kind of like. Um, anyway, there's a point. I'm not just playing my old college tracks for no reason. Uh, I tried like 50 times to recreate some of the things that I liked about that song. Like after I made it, you know, m melodies that were kind of similar or learning from what I was doing there or the lyrics or how I recorded it, how I sang it, whatever. But I could never do it. Now, I'm not saying that it would be impossible to figure that out, that I wouldn't figure it out someday. What I am saying, though, is that with all my other passions and projects and, and relationships, I was just not willing to make that a priority. And for me and the type of creator I am, what gets me super excited about making is the long haul. It's the acquisition of mastering a craft. Like, that's the fun part for me. And knowing that I just wasn't, dedicated enough to, you know, up my chops to understand what was working about that song What do I, for me? What did I like and how can I repeat it and et cetera? Knowing that I wasn't willing to do that just meant that that's just not going to be a part of my long game. Looking back, I can see that to me, creativity uh, and, and what's really served my creative practice has been that acquisition of like creative strategies, creative hacks. So even back in first grade, I remember being like so jazzed when uh, I learned my first art hack because my first grade teacher um, said, hey, it's, it's nice, told the whole class, it's nice when you color in the same direction. Like when you make all your strokes of your crayon going in the same way throughout the whole page. Now look, I'm not trying to put you in a box, but 
<laughs> for your coloring. Look, you can color outside the lines all you want, but I will say that first creative strategy that I got my, that I got my hands on instantly improved my pictures like 25% and I was just off to the races. I was collecting creative strategies from that day, tactics, tools of creative mechanics that consistently level up your craft. Now, that might not appeal to you. It might sound awful to you. If that's true, if you hate the sound of that, I would say this podcast might not be for you. And I'd also say that maybe uh, being a career creative is not for you. Because, and, and also, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think I, I really respect and understand creators that want to come to the page and do something they've never done before um, and, they, and they don't care if it's good, bad. Like, I very, very much respect that. That's just not the way I approach creative work and it's not the way that I've seen uh, people who are successful in making this a long journey of, you know, Sure, you're going to miss sometimes, but being able to consistently show up and hit the ball, so to speak, is really essential to um, having a, ha be, having a career, having having a creative practice, making it a habit. If you're a lifer, I think that you need to be collecting these strategies. Little tangent. Highly recommend the talk by global illustration legend Christoph Neiman. He did a talk uh, at 99U back in the day. I've mentioned it a few times in the show, but uh, it's really not to be missed. And it's all about how being a creative professional means the ability to do good work every time. Not great work, though. And how great work is not really fully in your control. Like, you can, if you make a ton of stuff, Great work will occasionally happen. That's just part of the batting average. And I would say not only is that just great lived experience from Christoph Neiman, who knows what he's talking about because he's made some truly great illustration work, but also in my little dipping of the toes into the neuroscience of creativity, like listening to neuroscientists uh, talk about it and understanding like every fifth word. Um, I've picked up that um, there, there's another great talk by Rex Young. It's a TED talk. Uh, and he's, a, an, I think he's a neuroanatomist, but he studies creativity. I'm not, I, I could be getting his uh, title wrong, but he talks about the same thing. There's the law of averages, like um, the scientists that have that are the most creative, that are the most prolific, that have made the most breakthrough papers, just have written more papers, that they don't have more hits per paper published. They have, they have the same average as other scientists, but what they do have more of is just more papers. And that's another reason why I'm all about being a career creative because the more songs you make, the more likely you are going to stumble on one that you really like. And if you keep doing it, your your average is going to go up and, um, and maybe you'll never be able to do great ones one after the next, but you will be able to find some consistency there. And that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about mastery. Anyway, tangent over. Back to the point. If you're going to be a lifer, a career creative, someone who's down for the lifelong thing, um, and, 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 and personally trying to aim to be at my peak creatively in my older age. That's really my hope. I want to see if it can be done. That's part of what this show's all about is like me, you know, part of it's sharing stuff I've learned that's helped me, but it's also me 
trying to find new concepts and ideas and, and explore questions like, is it possible to make your best work in your 50s, in your 60s, in, in your 70s? Like, is it? I don't know. I think some people have done it. It doesn't seem the norm, but I wonder if, I'm curious if, if the reason why it doesn't happen is because we don't approach creativity through the lens of mastery. And so, you know what, I'm going to, I aim to be doing this podcast for as long as I'm alive. I aim to be alive for as long as I can be alive. And uh, let's see where it goes. Let's see if I'm making better podcasts in my old age than I'm making now. Anyway, you're going to have to take a look under the hood of this car, of your practice. You're going to have to quit trying to reinvent the wheel every time you come to the page and instead learn the mechanics of how what works works and what fuels your best work. How, where you're going to have to take a look under the hood and be like, what am I running on? When I'm making my best work, is this unleaded or is this diesel? Like, what is it? And I'm talking food. I'm talking exercise. I'm talking sleep patterns. I'm talking, what are you consuming? You know, Austin Cleon talks a lot about like garbage in, garbage out when it comes to your creativity. What are you watching? What are you listening to? Is it just all you know, I, I have nothing wrong with so-called guilty pleasures. The idea that you're, you know, consuming creative work that's not that nutritional. But I think you should round out that diet with some acquired taste, with some stuff that, you know, you didn't know you, lo- you, didn't, you weren't sure if you liked it or you didn't like it, but you knew people that you trusted that liked it and you spent enough time with it to at least get it. You know what I mean? Like round out the diet. Like what is fueling your practice? Get to the bottom of it. How does your best work come to fruition? What were the scenarios? What's the um, engine behind the thing? And how do you keep your oil changed, metaphorically speaking? what I don't know what that one is, but whatever it is, if I asked you, the bottom line is if I asked you what strategies do you often employ in your creative work? What are the tactics, the mechanics, the tricks up your sleeve that you employ in piece after piece after piece? You know, you're going to use different ones at different times, but could you list them? And if you can't list a few offhand, then then I think you need to dig a little bit deeper. I'm talking gestalt principles, recording hacks and techniques, story or joke structures, analogies, metaphors, callbacks, improv techniques. Um, I think that you got to have some of these at the ready. And, and if you're making stuff all the time, hopefully you're doing a lot of this stuff intuitively at this point, but it doesn't mean that if you look under the hood of the stuff you're making, you can't be like, oh, this is what, this is a thing I learned back in college or in my twenties or last Tuesday that I've been trying out, you know, every episode of this show, I'm trying out a new tactic. I'm trying out an old tactic, trying to get better at it Um, in terms of storytelling or, you know, a lot of people don't realize like, you know, the story I told at the beginning, this is an under the hood moment right here. I didn't plan on talking about it, but at the start of this, we're talking about the concept car and um, merging the analogy of a car that doesn't work, is it really a car? An art that doesn't work, is it really art? And finding that language between it of moving you. Like that came off the back of a lot of writing and a lot of like uh, revisiting old storytellers, little moments that I have saved on my Dropbox of when I forget, why do I like doing this? I go to those and I'm like, what are the mechanics? How do they get that moment to happen? Okay, they set it up like this. 
this is where it comes together and and this is how they make that happen like i'm just it's just a it's like a puzzle that i like to solve each and every week that's how i keep coming back to it because it's not just about the goal of having a new podcast or or getting more listeners or or helping creators like it's also become just about the process of doing it cuz i like playing with these puzzles and techniques and strategies and and that's where my best work comes from anyway very tangential this this little section but i think there's some good stuff that comes from it um it's my authentic feelings anyway if you can't come up with a couple offhand you need to take a look under the hood of your metaphorical car your art and look back and see what are some of them Give them some names so that you can more easily access them on a regular basis. Hey, we usually have uh, two sponsors this week. We only have one. So I'm just going to tell you a few quick things. One, um, if you want to get an email every week when a new episode is available, you know, I sign up to some newsletters like that and I don't even open the email. I just delete it when I see it. It just lets me know that it's there. So if you don't ever want to miss an episode, that's mostly what we do with our newsletter. A handful of times, and I mean like five times a year, we send out news. We have a big event or big uh, launch or, or something that we want you to know about if you're a fan of the show. Otherwise, we don't spam you. That's it. That's all you get from us. You can get a free PDF um, creative career path e-booklet um, by signing up to the newsletter at creativepeptalk.com slash path, P-A-T-H. If you don't want the booklet, you can just go to creativepeptalk.com, go to the bottom of the page, and there's a subscribe little function there, and you can sign up um, so you don't miss uh, all the stuff that we do. If you want to help out the show in any way, if you're, if you're a fan, you got something from it, and you want friends to also, uh, or other creators to get something from it, two other ways you can help out. You can go to Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show. That helps us um, be more visible on that platform. And the other thing you could do is post about it on social media or tell a friend that you think could use a little creative pep talk. You don't have to be embarrassed. We all need a little creative pep talk on the creative journey. It's easy to get lost. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Um, Yeah. All right. Thanks. Chapter three, the call to adventure. You got to collect some renewable resources, okay? You can't just be running this thing on liquid dinosaurs, a.k.a. fossil fuels. And here's what I mean by that. You know, we all love creative work from creators who have these signature moves um, and have these, you know, this one song, one album, one movie that changed everything that was transcendental, uh, was transcendent, um, that, that took us to a different place, right? Like moved us. Um, we all have those creators and they have these things that they do that are singular. You know, there are those handful of songs from your favorite band where like there's, this is, uh, they never were able to capture this ever again, and I'm kind of glad that they didn't because it's what makes these couple songs so freaking special. It's just amazing. We all have those things, and uh, those are fossil fuels. Babies, 
Before we're done here, y'all be wearing gold-plated... Liquid dinosaurs, baby. These are things that you can't... <laughs> Liquid dinosaurs, I just love that phrase. You can't reuse them. They can't reuse them. They can't mimic them if they try. This is me, super satisfaction, my the height of my music career. I couldn't do it again if I tried to do it. I And I tried. And, uh, and, you know, we have those personally. And then we also have those with our heroes, like things that we can't really even be influenced by because they're just too signature to that creator. But what you do need to collect is the renewable resource. And I'll just quickly explain what I mean by that. I'm a big Lin-Manuel Miranda fan. You might not, you might know that. I've talked about Hamilton, um, the play a bunch of times on this. Um, I was obsessed when I first saw it on Disney Plus. I've since seen it in London and um, in Columbus, Ohio when it came through here. Love it. And I, and, and I love it even more because I am a career creative and I have uh, the most respect for creators that are able to show up in in and do magic seemingly over and over again. And Lynn Manuel, I mean, I don't know if there's a more there might be people with bigger hits in terms of um, transcendent creativity. There might be people that have uh, um, that that are cooler. Uh, I'm sure, um, but. I don't know if there's anybody working right now, to my knowledge, that is that has the track record as a career creative. You know, Hamilton was this crazy success, but then he goes on to write the songs for Moana, which were fantastic. But then also in the Heights and all the, I mean, I think that came before Hamilton, but whatever, quit fact checking me. Here's my point. This is the guy that goes on to write all the music for Encanto and write the biggest Disney hit of all time. Yeah, bigger than Let It Go. I'm talking something we're not supposed to talk about. That's right, Bruno. That song got stuck in my head for six months. And um, it was just this massive, unexpected runaway hit, except I'm not sure it was so unexpected to the creators of the movie because in that song, one of the things that I think makes it really special is um, Lin-Manuel's signature move where at the end, all the various parts of the song, all the singers come together at once and it forms this medley. Now, I already told you, I don't know anything about music, but when I went to see Hamilton in Columbus for the second time live, uh, the, you know, the first time it just washed over me. I, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even think straight. I was just swept away. But the second time I wanted to kind of just put my creative pep talk hat on for a minute and kind of figure out like what's happening why is this just destroying me? Um, you know, ugly crying at, by the end of it. And I kid you not, in the first act alone, I counted 16 full body chills. Now, I'm very sensitive. Uh, symptoms of Hamilton may vary based on your personal taste. Maybe you hate it. I don't know. But I got That's impossible. 16 full body body chills. And I looked at my daughter, who's a huge Hamilton fan. I'm like, yo, are you sure this is Hamilton? Are you sure this isn't Greece? 
because I'm feeling like Danny Zuko right now, if you know what I mean. I got chills, they're multiplying. <laughs> That's my full theater knowledge right there. <laughs> but, but, um, as I'm like getting full body chills, turns out I just had the flu. Um, no, it, it wasn't a freak occurrence. It was on purpose because Lin-Manuel knows what he's doing. And so I start researching about like, what is this guy up to? And I come across this technique, the polyphony. It looks like polyphony, but uh, I'm, I'm told by Google that it's called polyphony. Is this technique where you have all these singers come in together and form this kind of intricate onslaught of a medley that just sweeps you away. And, um, and I know that he knows the power of this. And I know he knew it was going to be powerful in Bruno because I heard on a, on a, in my research on YouTube and TikTok, a few people have called it out. It's also known as a Madrigal, which is the name of the last name of the family in Encanto. And so it wasn't an accident. It was on purpose. It's a result of creative mastery and creative strategy. And those are the kinds of things that you need to be collecting. And they are not the kind of things that make Lin-Manuel a creative genius. What they make him is a creative master, a career creative that has collected renewable resources from the heroes that came before him. Like I said, I don't know a ton about musicals, but I know enough about them and I know enough about Lin-Manuel from my research to know that he is a huge fan of the of Rent and the creator of Rent. He even made a whole movie about it called Tick, Tick, Boom um, about that musical creator. And I know just from just from them singing the song on The Office, that's about as much as I know about Rent, that it also uses and that this creator also used polyphony and madrigal and this technique and this isn't a thing that Lin-Manuel was first and won't be the last to use these renewable resources. Now, if you're in theater, this isn't news to you, but whatever practice you're in, it is your job to collect as many of these tools and employ them because Lynn manuel knows when all those voices come together, he gets chills. He uses his own taste and then he employs those renewable resources. And so here's your call to action, your call to adventure today. I want you to name three renewable resources that you use in your work. If you're a designer, it might be negative space. It might be another gestalt principle. If you're an illustrator, maybe it's showing, not telling in your kids' books where you're not using words to tell the story um, all the time. It might be the cognitive dissonance that happens or the, the space between the pictures and the words, how they're saying two different things in order to create a punchline or, or to create some in intrigue. Whatever it is, you know, for me back in the day, one of the only hacks that I had for making music was my buddy. You know, I was too poor to have a microphone. So I was that song you heard. That's just me singing into my internal mic on my MacBook, um, which it does sound kind of like crap. But one of the ways that you can hack it is he told me about Elliot Smith would 
take his vocals and he would double them and then he would just ever so slightly put them askew and it create this haunting effect that sounds so much more than the sum of its parts. And that's the whole point of this episode. You know, you uh, know that a joke is more than the sum of its parts. I know that, but you didn't always know that. You know, you didn't know that it wasn't just knock, knock, plus who's there, plus potato, plus potato who, plus potato you. Like, that's an addition problem. It's the sum of its parts. It's all there on the table. That's how kids make jokes and make art. But comedian's job is to know how do you multiply these things? I'll share one dad joke uh, or not dad joke, but just like a classic jokey joke that I heard on Mike Biglia's podcast um, by Alex Edelman. He shared um, (laughs) this one and he said, what is the what are pirates favorite letter what's their favorite letter in the alphabet and um of course you're gonna guess r and uh but it's so much better than that (laughs) i'm hyping this joke and he says uh r you think that it's r that we love but it's the c um (laughs) anyway um that is Uh, That joke is more than the sum of its parts because it takes expectations, what you thought it was going to be, turns it on its head, adds a little bit, and it makes a jokey joke. And so you have to do the same. What are your multipliers? How do you create work that plays on the psychological and, and, and works on your audience and doesn't just leave them in the same place as they were when they encountered it. How can you move your audience like a real car, like real art should? I think uh, today is, is as good of a day as any to sit down, just take five minutes and write out three techniques. If you're struggling to come up with three, go start studying, go start listening to your heroes and just tune your calibrate your creative gold metal detector in your brain for when they say anytime I hear a creator offhandedly say something um, I heard two comedians the other day talking about finding the game and I'd never heard of that so I went and watched YouTube videos about um, finding the game. It turns out it's an improv thing. I'm not going to explain it to you now. We don't have time for that. But you can go check it out if you're a comedian or a storyteller. Maybe that's something of interest to you. But write down three. Three creative strategies that you employ on a regular basis. Also, I know all of you are going to be desperate for this. Um, You can go to creativepeptalk.com and in the episode art or the episode notes of this episode, there'll be a a link to download the full super satisfaction because I know that (laughs) I know you're all going to be desperate for that. Um, For the two people that want to hear that again, that's where you can find it. And uh, yeah, that's it for another week. Um, thanks for thanks Yoni Wolf and the band Y for the theme music uh, and for all the other tunes 
Thanks to Connor Jones for editing the show so beautifully. Um, and um, thanks to Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton, and Sophie Miller for content assistance, podcasting assistance, uh, life assistance of all kinds to make it possible for me to make this show almost every week. Um, and uh, thanks to all of you for showing up. And until we speak again, stay pepped up.